All right, so for the topic for tonight, we'll be covering uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that will be riding upon um, the study that hopefully I think you've all just concluded from the FOF book about um, the work of Jesus Christ. So we'll, build, we'll be building upon that in, in our time together, and um, that should be a really good synergy there. All right. So, my first slide. I need to... Where should I point the clicker? That way? Okay. All right, great. All right, so the first slide here is just warming up. What is the context that we're talking about tonight? So the book of 1 Corinthians... It's in the New Testament, all right? And so in the New Testament, that comes after Christ, or it testifies of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We're going to cover that specifically in this passage, but especially in the New Testament, it gives us specific revelation of these facts. Also, it's going to be in the form of an epistle, right? So a correspondence that Paul has with the church in Corinth. And so as we're reading through the epistle, to the Corinthians, we're expecting plain language. We're, expect, we're not looking for um, lots of symbolism or um, just encoded messages, but we're just as just one person would talk to the next, that's what we're expecting as we read through for Corinthians. All right? Now, in terms of the context, there's a lot here that we want to keep in mind as we go to the book of 1 Corinthians. First of all, this was the Apostle Paul, and he's talking to the church in Corinth. This was um, a church located in the city of Corinth where there was a lot of trade, there was a lot of commerce, there was a lot of wealthy people. People there were not only prosperous, but they also had a lot of cross-cultural influences there as well. When you read through the epistle of 1 Corinthians, you see that there was also a lot of problems in that church. And we'll touch upon those a little bit later. This church in Corinth was actually founded by Paul. And so Paul had a very special love and care for this church. He had also written to the Corinthians before uh, what we have here in our Bibles, which is 1 Corinthians. He had also written not only 2 Corinthians, which we have in our Bible, but also another correspondence generally referred to as the severe letter. And so there's going to be a connection between all four of these um, epistles. Um, John wrote as prose, and then, of course, the purpose in Paul writing to the Corinthians is that there's a pattern of him trying to exhort and correct um, his beloved friends in the Corinthian church regarding their problems, the worldly thinking, their behaviors, and habits. Um, and that's something that we're going to see in the next slide. So, Here, just very simply again, this is just trying to show a pattern here, right? How many of us, when we talk to people, expect change right away, right? I generally do when I talk to my kids, but that's unfortunately not what Paul experienced when he talked to the Corinthians. He sent them a corrective letter, and you have to assume since he founded the church, that wasn't his first time talking to them. He had instructed them, he had helped found the church, um, but there is correction needed. A 
Apparently that correction was not successful since now we have in our Bibles the epistle of 1 Corinthians, which of its 16 chapters um, embodies a lot of correction. Paul is addressing many things and maybe not for the first time. There is another correspondence after 1 Corinthians referred to as the severe letter, where Paul was afraid that he um, either broke their hearts or that, he, um, that they would take it very badly. But then afterward, in 2 Corinthians, he writes another letter where he's defending his apostleship. There's an extended correspondence here that Paul has with the Corinthians, trying to exhort them to, um, to the gospel of the Lord. And where the, an ongoing theme here is correcting them with regards to their life and their living. Now that's important for us to understand what is the outline of this book. 1 Corinthians is not just the first correction that Paul is issuing to this church. Within 1 Corinthians, we can see that it starts off with affirming and addressing them as saints. But then, as you see, the bulk of this book, of this epistle, is dedicated to correction. The Corinthian church needed correction in divisions, how they would associate with one another, their relationships, their friendships, their allegiances, who they would exalt. Oh, I'm a follower of Apollos, or I'm a follower of Christ, or I'm a follower of Paul. But not only their associations with one another, but the Corinthian church also needed correction in matters of sexual immorality, the most private of matters, the matters of marriage, and also of liberty. And finally, in terms of how they would even interact with the Lord, worship in the church. All of these areas of their lives, spanning um, all of these topics, needed addressing and needed correction. And at the tail end of that, in the end of this book, we find the passage for tonight, resurrection. Or as we see here, it's really the hope of the church. By Paul affirming the saints as saints, he reminds them that even though they had all these problems going on, they had everything they needed in Christ. They had everything they needed in the wisdom of the Lord. And so what we can take away from this outline is even though there's correction after correction after correction, if you are in Christ, if you are indeed a saint, there's hope. There is the hope of the Lord and there is the hope of his wisdom and his ways. On the very bottom, if, uh, it might be hard to read, but that's a, a quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And this is really a theme of Paul's interaction with the Corinthians, what he's continuing to argue for them throughout the book and throughout his correspondences. And that passage says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That was the struggle that Paul was fighting with the Corinthians. He recognized that this was a battle between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. Or, in other words, the power of God and the power of man. 
the Corinthian church, even though they had all the blessings of sainthood and they had many giftedness, often resorted to the pattern of turning to exalting men and men's ways. That's why they had all of these symptoms of divisions and immorality and putting, exalting oneself over others or exalting themselves over um, each other or even God. They didn't recognize that God's way was the, was the good news indeed of the gospel. They kept resorting to the ways of the world. But Paul in this book and in this epistle and especially in the passage tonight argues for the wisdom of God. He argues for Christ and him crucified. Instead of resorting to the culture of the Corinthians, which was who could speak the most eloquently or who could make the most of their own giftedness, Paul instead, as we see in the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, argues instead it's just a simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is a special power there that we need to pay attention to in our passage tonight. So let's read that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people, we are of all people most to be pitied. So this is an incredible passage, not only where Paul addresses the doctrine of of resurrection, but really brings the Corinthians to focus upon what is the power of God. As we see in the first two uh, verses here in the chapter um, chapter 15, Paul makes his uh, main thrust clear. He tells the Corinthians he needs to remind them of the gospel. 
all of these other issues that he's addressed, their divisions, their quarrels, um, their, all of their fighting, it's really traced back to that, those Corinthians losing sight of the gospel and following another way. Paul needs to remind the, uh, the, the Corinthian church about the gospel because we always need these reminders. And he connects the gospel to the hope that one has as a believer. It's not only our security in which you received and which you stand in which you are being saved. But then what we'll see later on is when you don't have the gospel, when you don't have the resurrection, you truly have no hope. I've divided the passage into two main points here. The first point is from verses 3 through 7. And that's the for I have delivered to you as a first importance. We'll go into that a little bit later. And then the second point is for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Both of those are supporting why Paul is emphasizing the gospel and reminding the, um, the Corinthian church about the gospel. This is not new. They need these reminders. And so that's what we're going to look into next. What is most important? Paul says it clearly and plainly here. This is the most important thing. The Corinthians were looking for new knowledge, things that would be attractive, um, things that would grab people's attention, the best orators, the most charismatic speakers. But instead, Paul sticks to not just the basics, but the fundamental aspect of the good news. And this is not only of the greatest importance, but as, we're trying, as I'm trying to highlight here, it's the most significant. At the end of the epistle, this is clear. This is not just the first thing he talks about, but at the end, it's this exclamation point for the epistle. You need to cling to the gospel. Secondly, especially to a culture and a people who are looking for the next new thing and the next trend, Paul is emphasizing right in their face that this is not Paul's take on the gospel. Paul is just a faithful steward of what he's already received. He doesn't need to dress it up again. He doesn't need better articulation or performance abilities. He doesn't come in lofty speech or wisdom, as we read before. Instead, Paul is merely being faithful with what he's received because he knows that this is indeed the power of God, powerful to save, powerful to transform. And that's because Paul has clarity on what is the fundamental problem. As you read and studied in your FOF books, that problem is the problem of sin. It's sin before a holy God who cannot tolerate unholiness. That definition is, is that sin is anything contrary to God in thought and word and deed. In thought, it's what you conceive or entertain in your head. In word or speech, it's anything that utters, it flows out of your heart. That reference is really, sorry, Colossians 3.8. There's no 28 verses in Colossians 3. Um, and also it's indeed, it's what you do. Sin encompasses all of these things. All of this is before a holy God who sees all and we are accountable to for all things. So there's the things that we do that are sinful, that break God's law. When you practice lawlessness, when you do what's expressly forbidden by God, 
but you can also sin by not doing what you know is right to do. You can, and that's, I think, easy to overlook. Well, I didn't hit my brother or sister, right? Well, were you kind? I didn't say anything wrong. You can be omitting what you know to be right. That is also sin, and God knows. There is an expected behavior for a believer walking in light of the gospel. And all of that falls under what is required for those who are believers. Secondly, we can continue to, or going deeper, we can also remember that sin is not only any of these things, but there is also a condition of sin that we need to be mindful of as well. Once you sin, you can't take it back. You have hurt and you have defied not only God, but you also have hurt somebody else. You can't undo that. You can't undo the consequences of that. There is real hurt that comes with sin. It either hurts yourself as an image bearer of God and you bring disgrace upon that, or you bring disgrace upon the name of the Lord when you um, act contrary to the gospel before others. There's real damage there. But even worse is the, the lying and deceitful nature of sin. Those who are entrapped in sin, who continue to dwell in sinfulness, really live this out, especially those who have no knowledge of the word of God, who reject it. And that's, that's a warning for all of us to heed, is that the nature of sin is that it entraps us. And especially for those without the grace of God, they don't desire to be free of sin. That's scary. It tricks them, and it's their doom. There's more we can go into there, but for the sake of time, we need to be reminded of this, the hope that we have. And that's in the verses 3 through 8. This is really the focus upon tonight, the meat of the passage, which is Christ's work. Only by properly understanding the significance of our sins before God can we properly understand and appreciate the significance of Christ's work. That statement also works both ways. We can only appreciate the significance and the height of our sins when we realize it required Christ to die. Christ, true man, true God, son of God. The spotless, perfect lamb of God. When we think about what was required to appease God's wrath, we see pictures of this throughout the Bible. For the, in the temple sacrifice, the people of Israel had to bring a perfect lamb to be that picture of the sacrifice. The Passover lamb was another picture of that as well. Christ was the epitome where all of these pictures point to, the one who was perfect without blame, the only righteous one, who could pay the atonement price for our sins in such a way that God's just wrath against our sins could be satisfied. Isaiah 53 talks about this. And all of this is in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. When you look at that word, Christ died, it's important that that word is, is in the, died, that verb is in the active voice. Christ willingly died. There was a plan, and Christ executed it flawlessly. 
This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a retrospective, oh, how nice that somebody like Christ could die. But this was the plan of God unfolding to display the glory of Christ. Christ died for our sins, and Paul, in talking to the Corinthians, takes that further, and he says that was a real death. This was not Christ merely fainting upon the cross. This was not Christ putting a replacement or stranger upon the cross, but there was a real death, and there was a real burial. There was a bodily death. His body was crushed and buried And that's really needed because of the required price of sin. But then it goes right then into the next statement is that Christ was raised. Christ was raised in accordance with the scriptures on the third day. Christ was raised, importantly as well, is in in the passive voice. Christ was raised because this was the Father raising Christ out of the grave. It was a God's affirmation, God the Father's affirmation that the sacrifice of Christ, his life, living in perfect obedience unto death, was satisfactory to pay the penalty price of sin for all those who would believe. And that's amazing because nobody else could do that, not even for one person. Yet Christ accomplished that for all believers, all that the Father would give unto him. And It's impossible to comprehend, yet we are called to appreciate God's just wrath against sin has been propitiated, has been satisfied. There's nothing more to suffer for believers. And all of that because Christ died. And we can recognize that and we can take comfort in that because Christ was raised, Christ resurrected. That's what this passage is talking about, is that not merely Christ was resurrected as a fact, but Christ's resurrection was God the Father's affirmation that this sacrifice of Christ was satisfactory, that he was indeed holy. And in that glorified state, he appeared. As the scriptures say, we need the account of two or three witnesses to verify that anything's true. That's given to us here in abundance. The glorified Christ appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to five hundred brothers at one time. It wasn't just an illusion. Most of whom are still alive. He appeared then to James, then to all the apostles, and then to one untimely born, Paul himself. And many of these apostles, as we learn later on, maintained the testimony of Christ's resurrection unto the pain of death even unto torture. This is not something that they came up with, but they all testified and they all died for this truth, that Christ indeed was crucified and rose again. This is something that the Corinthians had trouble believing in. Culturally, it just wasn't cool to believe in resurrection. Culturally, they believed in mythology, that there was a Hades that you can go to or the Elysian fields, They thought that resurrection wasn't needed. But yet, as we read on in the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, as we read before, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then there's really no hope for believers. There's no new life because then Christ's 
death was not satisfactory. We need to remember that as believers. Christ's death for our sins must be verified in order for us to take comfort in that. Christ dying for our sins in isolation, if you take away the burial, you take away the resurrection, you take away the appearance, means nothing. It was a triune act of God, the death for sins by Christ and the Father verifying that, validating that, and the, affirming that in the resurrection, that we can take comfort in, that this is indeed our good news of the gospel. And Paul, in his kindness, expresses that same encouragement to the Corinthians. He gives his own testimony of the power of God. He doesn't just say, oh, this is true and this is real, but he gives his own evidence. He submits his own evidence to the table here. And this is the second point. We need to recognize the power of God in the gospel. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why would Paul say that? He had the greatest training. He had the greatest pedigree. I'm sure he was rich at some point. And yet now he says he's the least of the apostles, unworthy to be an apostle. The reason why is because Paul sees with eyes redeemed by Christ who he really was. He was a hater of God and he was a hater of God's people. He persecuted the church of God, the same church that Christ died for. But yet he recognizes God's intervening grace. That but is amazing. Um, Ephesians also has that same word. But by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. That idea of not in vain is not empty. There's not empty promises of God's grace. God's grace doesn't just floats upon you like magic pixie dust and nothing changes. God's grace has real power in it. It's transformative. It changes your nature in addition to the forgiveness of sins. All of that comes together. It's a complete package. You are made new in Christ. And so Paul testifies of God's not only intervening gospel grace, but God's transformative grace. Paul makes this connection here. He used to be one who labored in persecuting the church, but yet after God's intervening gospel grace, Paul labors and works hard for the glory of Christ in preaching, in ministry. That's what God's grace does. It transforms those who are rebellious to those who would be slaves of God. And that, in such a way that that is the delight. Paul argues that the resurrection is real because he experienced that himself. There was real transformation, real power in the gospel. And that's what he wants the Corinthians to know and see and to experience. He says, whether it's I or they, whether it's him or any other apostle, any other bearer of the gospel of Christ, his desire for the Corinthians is that they would believe. It wasn't just that they wouldn't have issues. It was so that they would indeed believe the gospel of God. And that's the whole point. Christ died so that sinners would be saved. 
And that's the gospel context that we have for this passage. It's all about the work of God to save sinners. As we were reminded, Paul is reminding the Corinthians about the gospel because they had issues. And not just because they had issues, but the issues revealed that they had swerved and veered away from the gospel. And so he reminds them, they don't just need to fix their issues. They need to remember what's the most important, of first importance. They need to know the gospel. They need to know that Christ has saved them, not merely from circumstances and situations and quarrels. They need to know that Christ saved them from sins and sinfulness before a holy God and saved them unto new life with Christ. And Paul demonstrates that impact or shows them that impact in his own life. That is the same gospel context that we want to see. We are all going, there is always a stewardship of the gospel. What we have received, we don't keep unto ourselves, but it is the gift of God. And we all, in witnessing or experiencing Christ's work of the gospel, if we are truly believers and we repent of our sins, we will have that same testimony as the Apostle Paul did. We will be saved by that same grace and saved by the same faith. And we will all be able to testify that by the grace of God, we are who we are. We're no longer who we were. And that God's grace in us is not empty, it's not vain, it's not powerless, but it indeed transforms us to glorify Christ all the more. This passage is all about the gospel. It's all about the arguing the power of the gospel and it describes the power of the gospel, that the greatest persecutor of the church could be one of the greatest apostles. And so when we come to the authorial intent, what is Paul talking about here to the Corinthian church? Well, yes, he's addressing that they have the doctrine of resurrection wrong. But in addressing the doctrine and correcting them in the doctrine of the resurrection, he's pointing them to their essential hope that must lie in the gospel. Without the resurrection, you have no gospel. And in particular, how the resurrection is connected to everything in the gospel, Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Paul, and also arguing that, brings his testimony of God's grace. All of this is in contrast to the problems that Paul is trying to address and correct in the Corinthian church. He's trying to cut them off from the wisdom of the world by showing them that which the world would call foolish, the gospel, the resurrection, the crucifixion, is God's wisdom of how sinners are saved. He's trying to show them that instead of relying upon their own gifts and works, and methods about how to live life or how to enjoy life or how to make the most of everything, he's trying to show them that all of that is vanity, that it's empty. But instead, what is not empty is God's grace. For the things of this world will only pass away. And he presents to them God's grace, which does not pass away, but indeed has new life in Christ. The authorial intent of this passage is Paul is telling them that they need to be reminded of the gospel. 
for the work of God accomplishes, the work of Christ accomplishes what man's work can and never will. And he wants them to believe that. That's repeated at the beginning and end of this passage. So we preach and so you believe. Right? Isn't that the mark of, a belie- of somebody who knows God's grace? They believe and you see that not only in their words and their thoughts, but also their actions. It's evident. Well, what do we do here? In terms of application, is the gospel, the good news of Christ, Christ dying for sins, of first importance in your living and thoughts? Is there a connection there? Or is this just nice to know? Because Christ died for sins, and because he has risen again, does that have any impact on why you make decisions in life? What, what you pursue for, whether it's employment, what decisions you make about relationships, what kind of relationships you entertain, um, the friendships that you would bring into your life, or what influences you would surround yourself with, or what type of influence you would try to impose or to bestow upon others. There is a manner in which you can properly live in light of the gospel. Later on in chapter 15, Paul, in pressing forward the, the importance of the resurrection, tells the Corinthian church, do not be deceived and do not continue sinning. This is not just a doctrine that has no bearing upon our lives. We must live in light of the gospel, for we will all meet our creator. And so don't be deceived. This life isn't all there is to live for. You will have to answer to the Lord. You will have to answer to your sinfulness. Is that entrusted to God and entrusted to Christ? Has Christ died for your sins? Or are you turning to some other means or some other wisdom to give you peace at night? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Remember, this is a book written to saints, the saints of the church in Corinth. There's also an aspect of which living in light of the gospel means we don't get disheartened. We know that the gospel is God's solution in all matters of life. Do we believe and entrust ourselves to God's ways and his wisdom? Or do we find our own solutions to get around the problems we have in life or the things that would cause us difficulty or pain? Do we turn to our own works, our own methods, to get the kids to sleep at night, or to resolve conflicts with our spouse or friends? Or do we trust that the Lord's way of seeking peace in Christ and being humble would honor him? We need to be mindful of the gospel. God created us for these works, as we're going to learn more of next time. And the word of the cross is indeed the power of God. That's what we have an opportunity to put on display when we apply the gospel. Or do we, otherwise, if we don't do these things, we're really trying, we're just magnifying our own efforts, our own 
ingenuity and our own solutions. So let us be believers in the gospel of God. May others see in us that we not only testify of these things, but we really also are, uh, are those who look forward to the resurrection, who, who take comfort in knowing that our Christ is alive, and that the way of the cross is, is the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Dear Father God, Paul, in addressing the Corinthians, had many burdens, I'm sure. They were constantly misbehaving, as could be easily thought of. But yet he knew that their solution rested only in the way of the Lord, only in the gospel, message of the gospel. And thank you, God, for that reminder that we have today is that we all have various issues. We all have various pain points in our life, things that need to be fixed or circumstances that need to be addressed. And yet, Lord, we can take comfort in knowing that our greatest problem of sin is solved in the person and death of Christ upon the cross, Christ crucified. What an amazing comfort that is. And yet, even more so, we know that that is comforting because he has been resurrected and he lives. May we not disassociate those two truths, Lord. For we know that our God is not only real, but he is alive and powerful, and that the gospel is powerful. It is mighty to save. May we remember, Lord, you desire for us to live lives that please and honor you. May it be a testimony to those around us. May our family members, our husbands and, sp and wives, may they see the gospel at work in us. May they see that we entrust ourselves to your ways, Lord. May our little ones, our children, see that we are not people who just look for methods and ways of this world to get ahead or to live comfortably or to get our own way, but instead we turn to your word for wisdom. We seek to live in a way that honors you, for you have bought us with a price. And may we indeed give thanks to you, Lord, for we are not measured by our performance, but you have saved us by your grace. How sweet is that? May we give thanks to you always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.